Welcome to the Run for PRs podcast. This is your host, Victoria Phillippe. The Run for PRs podcast was created to give away the secrets to transform your training to reach your goals. We ask all the expert run coaches and athletes the questions that you've been dying to know the answers to. We will get the inside scoop on what really makes you the best athlete that you can be. Have you ever seen a fast runner and wonder, wow, how did they get so fast? Well, then this podcast is for you. We are going to do a deep dive to reveal the secrets to reaching your potential as a runner. We are doing a little bit of a different format of podcast today. You may be used to the standard one topic podcast where Jason and I talk in depth about one topic, but today we are asking the questions that you guys wanted us to answer, and we will just chat about an extended answer to some questions that the listeners brought to us. So today we're talking about a variety of topics. Here are some of the questions just as a preview. What should my heart rate be when I race, and how can I bring my heart rate down without slowing down my runs? How can I get faster on long runs? Different ways to carry fuel and water for training for a marathon. Do all of the coaches pool knowledge together or do you work independently? And then a sprained ankle a week ago, how much longer can I run? Is there anything I can do so that I don't lose fitness? And the last question was about strength training. We had two separate ones on this. The first one was during a cutback week. Can I still strength train? And then what are the top three strength training exercises that every runner should do? So we posted on Tuesday of this week um, on our Instagram and just asked, like, what sort of questions do you want us to answer on a podcast? And we left that up for a few hours um, and we selected all of the questions that came in actually, and then we, we took it down. So we might do this in the future if this is something that you guys like. So let us know, reach out on social media or shoot us an email at info at runforprs.co. If you have future questions that you want answered on a podcast, we would love to kind of get to know you guys and use this as a resource so that you guys can get your training questions answered. Or if there's ever anything you've just been curious about, feel free to ask us and we would love to do another episode in this format because we love helping runners achieve their goals and to grow into a better understanding of the sport of running. And this is just fun to do something a little bit different this time. So Kicking things off with a little bit of the heart rate training, heart rate monitor. This is a huge topic. I know in the past we've done whole podcasts devoted to this episode, but specifically, I know there are a lot of questions that do come in about what should my heart rate be when I'm racing or doing workouts? So we're talking about what should my heart rate be when I'm running hard, right? And sometimes that data doesn't always line up or it's not exactly where we want it to be. So Jason, I think I will ask you to kind of kick things off with this question. What should your heart rate be when you are racing? Great question. I think for most of us, um, our true heart rate is probably going to fall somewhere between, you know, 80% to 100% of our maximum heart rate. And that can vary, obviously, based on um, a lot of factors. And so unless you specifically train according to heart rate and you 
are like a heart rate data person and you um, probably use like a, um, a chest strap monitor, um, I probably wouldn't give you any sort of like um, ranges for what it should be because there's so many factors that play into it, right? And in training, we're primarily focused on effort-based training and paces. Um, we're not really going off a heart rate, especially if you're relying on a wrist heart rate monitor. That can just be so faulty. A um, couple examples, I've, I've done 5K races before where the heart rate um, the heart rate reading told me it was average of like 145. And I know that's not right. Like I know I was working hard. Obviously I was pushing myself to, to my max running a 16 minute 5k. So, um, you know, there's just so many variables, um, that could affect the heart rate and the accuracy. And so, um, unless you are someone that has gotten consistent, accurate readings with like a chest rate monitor, we would recommend not going off a heart rate. Right. Yeah. And the heart rate wrist monitor is fairly accurate. And so I think that's where it can be a little confusing for people because it's not always accurate, right? Um, it, it can be within a reasonable range, but sometimes it's just not accurate. And you need, if you're going to be training based on heart rate, you need something that's consistently accurate and that's going to be giving you feedback that is correct. That being said, we personally at run for prs do not train based off heart rate. So we have have three things that we utilize in training. It's going to be your paces based on your VDOT. And then we're going to go off the effort scale. And then we use heart rate and those in that order, right? So number one for us is always paces. Number two, always effort. And then the third thing you're going to look at is heart rate. But the reason that we do not focus on heart rate when it comes for running and performance and all of those things is because there are just so many factors that will impact your heart rate. And just from a training perspective myself, I understand this um, because I, you know, there are, training doesn't happen in a vacuum. If you have any sort of sleep deprivation or you don't get the ideal amount of sleep, um, even just one night can lead your heart rate to be increased the next day. Um, stress. So if you're stressed from work or if you're stressed from, you know, family things going on or whatever it may be, maybe if you're even just stressed about the workout that you're about to do or about the long run that's supposed to be at a long, easy pace, or maybe you're stressed about, oh, am I going slow enough on this run? That can lead your heart rate to be higher. So it's kind of redundant in that if you're stressing so much over how can I keep my heart rate in the right zone, it can actually cause your heart rate to go in a higher zone than you want it to be because you're stressed. Um, the heart rate isn't just only responding to the stress of the workout, it's responding to other things. So another thing, if you're drinking caffeine, I know I'm someone that always drinks caffeine before a run, but these are things that are going to elevate your heart rate. Um, the weather can also have a huge impact on your heart rate. So if you're training in an area where maybe one day it could be 70 and humid and the next day it'd be in the 40s, kind of like we do in Minnesota here in the spring, that can really play a role into what your heart rate is going to look like. And I've had athletes say, you know, on my workout days, and even I've experienced it myself, on a workout day, you might have your heart rate be in like the 150s, maybe 160s, then you go on, on your recovery run the next day and there's like this panic that's happening because, oh my gosh, my heart rate's in the 160s, I'm supposed to be doing a recovery run. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you're doing the run incorrectly. It just means that, hey, maybe your body's under a lot of stress, maybe you didn't 
recover as quickly as you thought you were going to when you go out on that recovery run. Your body is saying, hey, you know, I'm still feeling a lot of the fatigue from yesterday's workout. Um, Maybe it's hotter out. Maybe you're picking a hillier route. Um, There's a lot of factors that can go into that. And that's why we don't focus too much on that heart rate training just because so many things can skew that. Um, And this, this leads a little bit into the how can I bring my heart rate down without slowing down too much? And this question, I wish that people could follow me on Strava because you could see that I just raced a half marathon last weekend. I ran a 129 half, so 13.1 miles at 648 per mile. My heart rate was in the 150s for the entirety of the race. Um, The next day, I went out and I ran two miles at like 1130 pace, and my heart rate was in like the 150s, 160s. So I think there is a little bit of, you have to really understand kind of what's going on in your body and not focus so much on, oh my gosh, I need my heart rate to be in a certain zone when I'm running. If we can focus more on the process and staying in the right pace zones and focusing on how do I feel, focusing on your form, focusing on getting lost in the flow of the run, that is when things start to really click and you will naturally notice um, heart rate training kind of getting into the right zones based on doing the correct training. So you want to keep those easy days really easy, keeping them two to three minutes per mile slower than your 5k pace. You want to be checking in with yourself, you know, maybe on your easy runs, if your heart rate is consistently in the 160s or, or even higher, maybe we need to start asking the questions like, If that's really what your heart rate is, maybe that's a sign that your body isn't ready for that much mileage. Maybe we need to cut out one day of running per week. Maybe we need to retest your fitness and see where you're at, right? So there's a lot of things that these can be signs of, but I don't want to use heart rate as, oh, you know, like I'm in such good shape because I ran, you know, a five mile run, easy run, and my heart rate was in the 130s versus last week it was in the 140s, 150s. Um, Jason, do you have anything to add? Do you personally recommend training off of heart rate? And what do you find that this is like in your in your training? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I never really notice heart rate much. I don't look at it on my average runs. Um, I did happen to after a few races just to kind of out of curiosity. And it's just been way inconsistent, right? I've seen readings as low as 145 all the way up to the 190s. And so that's kind of just why I shy away from it and I go more off of effort and pace. Um, But one idea I have for those of you who are trying to slow down without um, or trying to lower your heart rate without really slowing your pace too much, like Victoria mentioned, um, focusing on your form and just staying really relaxed is a good kind of mental cue. And another thing would be to do do a little warm up before you run, because I've noticed before where if I just get up from work and I go out and run, um, sometimes the effort just seems like it's harder than it should be. But on those days where I'm, I'm kind of fairly active before my run, uh, I notice the run goes better. And so just start by doing some like dynamic drills. You could do just five minutes of just like form drills, like high knees, butt kicks, stuff like that, some stride accelerations and some dynamic uh, uh, mobility drills to get like your hips and your, your joints loosened up. And I think that could help as well. Right. Yeah. And I know we are a little preachy on our social media, like make sure you keep your easy runs two to three minutes per mile slower and all that stuff. And sometimes people can go out there on their easy runs and they're just so focused on, I really have to keep this pace, you know, really slow. And like, they're constantly checking their garment or they're just staring at their heart rate on their screen. But really the idea is that we don't want to get too much into the data, right? We don't want to like ruin the run by focusing so much 
on that um, on that data. So you want to be aware, go out with an intention. But when you're on your run, try to be in the run. Try to be in the moment. Don't get too hyper focused on the stats and the data. Like your body's going to let you you know a few things, and then when you're done with your run then that's when I would check the data. I would see, okay, was my heart rate in the right zone? Was I running in the correct pace zone? That's what you should be doing. When you're on a run, especially an easy run, I think it's more important to focus on enjoying the run, right? Because so often we go out there and the second you start stressing about, oh my gosh, why is my heart rate so high? It leads to stress. It stresses you out. It's a miserable experience for the the person running And it also probably will lead you to having a higher heart rate for the entire run. It might stress you out later in the day. Um, It's just one of those things where you want to kind of get into the flow of getting lost in your run and and using it as more of a a time to be out in nature and focus on other things in life or maybe relax with your music, those sort of things. We don't want to like lose sight of kind of why we're out there in the enjoyment of running if we're so focused on, you know, this heart rate thing. So I would say... Set an intention, focus on, okay, checking in with yourself every so often with the breathing and with, am I pushing too hard, that sort of thing, and then check your stats after. But before you go out the door, just try to relax, like you said, doing a few drills and then setting an intention when you're out on that run before you go out there and then not not hyper-focusing too much on staring at the heart rate during the run. Because after every run, if you look at the data and you're like, okay, wow, um, you know, I pushed it too much or whatever. You can make adjustments after the fact. Don't don't like ruin every run that you're on by criticizing yourself or saying, oh, my heart rate's so high and that sort of thing. Um, so I guess that's that's where I'll end with that one. Do you have anything to add, Jason? Um, no, I know we were talking about just the accuracy. And I think, you know, obviously weather is one variable. Um, if, if it's too cold, the receiver might not transmit because of, of the temperature. Also, if you're too sweaty, it may not get a reading. And I think like in a race that time I was talking about, I did a warm up, So my heart rate probably read like 140s and then I saved it. And then I, I went into the race and I think it just probably just thought I was still going about the same pace, same effort. Um, it just wasn't for whatever reason, getting that accurate reading, um, but you know, heart rate, it is pretty accurate. I would say like 90 to 95% of the time, but if we rely on it all the time, we're going to get those outlier cases like I had. And then it just becomes like, it just messes with your, your mental, mental state. And so that's why I kind of shy away from it. Um, but it is a good guide. It's a good tool. Just don't rely solely on it. Yeah. That's a huge thing that you just said, how it can get into your head and we don't want it to turn into this negative spiral. That's the biggest thing that we're advocating against because the second, you know, like you said, on a warm up before a race, you really want to be in a positive headspace. Um, and if you are looking at your, your heart rate on your warm up or something, um, and it's saying that, oh, you know, on your warm up, your heart rate got into the 160s, that can almost send you into like this panicking spiral. So I think it's better to not really hyper focus on that until after the fact, use it as more of an analytic data after. And when you are in the moment, kind of focusing more on pacing, focusing more on how you want to feel, that sort of thing. So that brings us into the next question that we're going to address here. We had come in, someone wanted to know how they can get faster on long runs. And that's such a broad topic, right? And I think almost everyone wants to be able to run longer and run faster 
over a long run? So this is a really good question. And the answer is probably not going to be the most popular. It's, it's kind of um, just basic, right? So it takes time and consistently training with a p- specific progressive overload to become faster um, over a longer distance. So we also want to make sure that we're doing your long runs at the correct pace. So when we start getting into that mindset of, I want to go as fast as I can, as far as I can, um, and vice versa, we can start going into that mindset where we want to be racing or testing our fitness all the time instead of training. And so it's really important to remember that 99% of the time we want to be training and you only race like 1% of the time, right? So we don't want to be constantly testing, testing ourselves. How far can I go at this pace? How long can I sustain that pace? That's what we want to do on race day. And that's how you get into the best shape possible is when you are training at you know a lower intensity so that you can really perform and test out your max effort on race day. Um, and this is a very similar principle throughout all of you know, fitness and all of sports, you know, you always are, you practice and then you have game day or you're lifting and you do a ton of sets and reps. And then if you want to practice your one max rep, you're putting on weight you've never lifted before, right? That's very similar to running and training for long distance races. Yeah. And the short answer here is to focus on getting faster first in the, in the shorter distances, right? So, um, you know, what, looking across the board at your 5K time, how fast can you run a mile, that sort of thing. Um, what is your average pace for easy, shorter runs? And then also, um, what type of workouts are you doing? Because um, I think over time, I think Victoria alluded to this, that, you know, over time, um, doing workouts, the accumulating factor is that the easy pace runs are going to feel easier and your easy pace is slowly going to get faster as your um, fitness progresses. And so, um, we talk about the VDOT calculator a lot of the time and, um, you know, I'll, I'll put my pace, my uh, recent race result in there, for example, and it'll spit out my easy pace, um, which is, you know, depending on the shape I'm in, it's usually going to be between seven and eight minutes per mile, um, eight minute pace per mile. So, um, I will obviously start a lot of my long runs at eight minute pace or even slower. And then I will kind of progress down into the 730, 720 range. And on a day where I'm feeling really good, I can get closer to, to the faster end of that easy range. And I try not to go any faster unless it's a specific workout. Um, so each, each long run should kind of have its own intended purpose. And I think, um, you know, in the scheme of things, if you're struggling to sustain a certain pace on a long run, you probably want to you know, reconsider the, um, what your goals are for running and and try to maybe just run for shorter distances for a while. Right. That's a really good thing to add is that, you know, those easy, uh, long runs should be pretty slow, two to three minutes per mile, slower than your 5k pace. Um, so I guess the best thing to really dive into this question is figuring out, more specifically, what is your goal, right? So it's great to want to run fast over long distance, but does that mean you want to run a fast 50K? Does that mean you want to run a fast road marathon? Does that mean you want to run a fast half marathon? Or does this mean maybe, hey, I want to run a fast 10 mile or 10K? What running long and what running long over 
fast over long distance means to everyone is a little bit different, but you really need to specify exactly what it is that you want to do so that you can train in a very specific way to reach that goal. So the more specific you can be with what your goal is, the more specific we can create that training for you. And then the more likely you are to be able to achieve that goal. Um, So training for a 10K versus a marathon, they're going to look totally different, but someone might say that they're both over a long distance and you can run fast at both of them. So we really want to know that going into training and then training very specifically to you. So we want to train at the fitness level that you're at and just doing that consistently over time is going to lead you to be faster. It's going to lead you to build endurance. You're going to lower your threshold, which allows you to run at a faster pace over a longer distance. And I think my favorite workouts for, um, you know, half marathon and above would be threshold work, more tempo runs, a little bit less on that speed work side. So it just really depends on specifically what your goal is, but nothing can outwork um, time and consistent training. There isn't really like a secret recipe to doing it. And that's why I think it's really important to bring up that, you know, in the age of Strava, in the age of Instagram, you can follow a lot of people who are in a very similar fitness level to you, I guess you could say. So I follow a lot of people who have ran similar times to me in the marathon, in the half marathon. And it can be really tempting even for myself as a coach to look at other people in their training and think, hey, you know, they're running faster over these long runs. I think that's the secret to, you know, getting faster or to just have that sort of comparison um, game when you're looking at long runs, when you're looking at fitness levels. But that's a really slippery slope to go down because what someone else is doing, unless you're getting like the full picture of what they're doing, it's not really a good indicator that it's the right thing to do. And some people run for different reasons, right? So some people are just out there doing runs at whatever pace because that's what feels good for them. Other people are following more of a specific training protocol so that they can really get the most out of themselves. And so you would hate to follow someone else's training and try to replicate it only to discover that they're actually on a downward trajectory or they really just don't care about their performance that much. Even though they are a very fast runner, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're training in an optimal way to get faster. And so when you replicate someone's training, who isn't necessarily training in the best way possible just because they're fast or just because they're nailing these fast long runs doesn't even necessarily mean that they're going to run a faster marathon time than you or they're going to run a faster half marathon time than than you or than what their goal is or whatever. Um, even just this last weekend, there was someone run for PRs. She did all of her long runs in like the 930 pace range. Um, and then she's in the local area. So this is why it's really sticking out to me, but she ran a 324 marathon. So for her marathon, she ran 745 ish pace. And that was a a huge PR for her first BQ. And that was 745 pace over 26.2 miles when all of her training was in the nine minute pace for her long runs. And so that's just a testament to when you follow the process and you train in the correct zones and you do specific workouts within training. So it was, she was doing threshold work. She was doing higher mileage, right? She was doing all the things that build to that one final goal of really nailing a very fast, very long run. So do you have anything to add last minute to this one? 
Yeah, you know, I would say if, if you're kind of unsure that you are doing your long runs at the right pace, obviously, um, you know, reach out to us and we can help you figure that out. But um, a lot of times a good rule of thumb is um, how fast you recover from these runs. Are you able to hit your workout paces on, you know, your next workout a couple of days later? And um, if your legs are still feeling sluggish, heavy, it's probably a sign you're running a bit too fast. Um, like you said, the marathon paces should always be faster than what our, you know, easy long run paces. And I know for a lot of kind of beginner runners, um, that's always not the case. Sometimes it's actually the opposite where they're running faster than what they could sustain for a marathon. Um, so you want to always finish these long runs. Like you could keep going for a long time. And, um, you know, if you're not doing, doing them correctly, you're not getting the physiological benefits that people like that athlete that you mentioned, um, who's training at the 930 pace, she's getting more capillary um, development and mitochondrial development. Her muscles are getting prepared to be able to handle that faster pace for that sustained duration. Right. And most importantly, not only is she getting all those additional benefits, she's also saving her race effort for race day. So she's training in the training zones and then she's testing herself on race day. And I think that's the really important thing. And and, and that's really hard for a lot of athletes because we want to see the benefits. We want to see our hard work pay off. And that's really the addictive part of running. But eventually all athletes, um, when they're in the sport for long enough, they're going to reach a point where you can't get away with seeing improvements daily. You can't get away with seeing improvements weekly, monthly, even yearly, right? So you have to instead be very specific about how you're training and following these rules is the key to getting there. Um, So the next question that we had is also related to more of these long distance running um, questions. And it's really an important one because as it warms up around the country and around the the world almost, I mean, not, not all parts of the world, but around Where we live, it's starting to get warmer, right? And so we did have a question come in about different ways to carry fuel and water for training. So as we're gearing up, thinking about these fall marathons that are finally happening, we are going to be starting to see people running longer runs. And so anytime you're running over 60 to 90 minutes, that's probably a time where you're really going to want to be starting to work with fuel and starting to take water in on your runs. And that can be a little bit challenging because I don't know where you guys live, but around here, there's nowhere to stop for water. So you kind of have to be your own water boy or water girl on your training runs. And so we wanted to dive into this topic a little bit, just from my own personal experience, what I do, I've trained for 19 marathons. Um, I've qualified for Boston 13 times now. And the thing that I like to do with water stops, I know maybe this isn't the perfect way to do it, but I'll just do circular routes. I will circle back to my house or I will circle back to a water bottle somewhere. Um, and I will take water in every four to six miles. Um, and I will stop. So I do stop to do that. It takes about 30 seconds to sip on some water and then continue running. Uh, I personally do not like to run with a water backpack on. I have one and I've used it sometimes, but I just feel it. I don't know. I don't like the way that it it feels. It feels heavy. Um, It kind of ruins the vibe of my run. Personally, I know some people love them, right? Um, Other people will use handheld water bottles, um, again, I haven't really found anything that I've I've loved in that realm. So I'm someone who will just have water either in my car if I'm driving to a destination to do a run and do a couple out and backs. Or there have been a few times where I think you've 
given water to me um, on a training run, like I say, hey, meet me here in, you know, an hour and a half or whatever. And so then you're able to do a little bit of a longer route. If you're someone who's lucky enough to have some group runs, that can be a really good way to take advantage of the group training runs because a lot of times these coaches will have water stops out. And so that is super prime. And that's why sometimes we recommend, hey, do some of your training with a group because they take care of a lot of that logistical side of things. But if you're out there on your own, you just have to make it work um, and find a way where it works for you. Yeah, I'm kind of like you where I've never really trained with a water backpack or a handheld water um, bottle. But if I was going to do a like an ultra race or, or train for one, I would probably look into that. Um, there's also the the waistband um, with the water bottles that you can get as well. So it, it would be more just like a a preference for your comfort and what, what you like better. Um, and as far as, yeah, so I would do the same thing for planning my routes to make sure, you know, every long run, if it's going to be 90 minutes or longer, I'm going to figure out a way to get some sort of fuel and hydration. So I will plan ahead um, for that. Yeah, definitely. And I think also understanding if you're going after an aggressive time goal, like maybe a BQ or whatever it may be, you're going to want to be conscientious of if you are physically stopping for water like I do, you really want to make it quick, right? Because if you're getting into this habit of stopping for 8, 10, 12 minutes on your training run, whether that's solo or with a group, um, you're not exactly getting the same exact benefit, both mentally and physically, as you would if you just kind of make them quick, make it uh, more you know, timely, because if you are shooting for an aggressive time goal, it's really important to keep those things in mind because you want to practice like you will on race day. Um, and then obviously for fueling, like if you're going to use gels and that sort of thing, I would fuel every 30 to 45 minutes with those. You can use like a flip belt. You can put them in your sports route with pockets. If you have pockets on your shorts, you can utilize that. I like to use the flip belt and I just tuck all of my gels in there and it seems to be enough room for upwards of, you know, five, six gels if you really need it. Um, and yeah, so I hope that answered that question. On to the next one. It is do all of the coaches pool their knowledge together um, or do you work 100% independently? And so Run for PR started in 2014. For a while, it was just me, just my background, just my knowledge, right? And it can be a little bit limiting. You don't know what you don't know, right? So there's a little bit of ignorance attached to that where you think you know everything, right? Or like when you research things, you think you're you're really developing um, a broader perspective, right? And, and you can get certified, you can get all of those things and you have experience, but it's always limited, right? So When I brought on my first employee, um, which is Coach Ben Jacobs, he's still with us. Um, He's the head coach now. I brought him on in 2016, and so that's been five years. But what really blowed my mind, like right after we hired him, was like, wow, I really didn't know as much as I thought I did, or just having that um, someone there to kind of challenge your beliefs or to expand on them, right? So that's really important. Um, Just the whole idea of the coaches all kind of came from different backgrounds. They all had different coaches growing up. They all had different experiences with college athletics. They all went to different universities. And so you have a lot of things in common. So there are so many things that it's like, yes, absolutely. We agree. We agree. But there's like little nuancey things of you know, just how, how to do the art of coaching is, 
is so unique from person to person. So you might agree on all of like the physiology part, but I think where we really can grow and learn from each other is the the psychology part of things or how, how people work or how to coach effectively. Um, and so that's kind of where it comes down to at even the college or high school level. A lot of our coaches had experiences with coaches at high school, college, middle school, and some of them were great experiences and they learned, hey, this coach really fired me up. They got me motivated. Some of them not so great of experience. And so you really learn from those things and you take those tools with you in your toolbox when you go onto your career in coaching. And that's, I think, really what what makes a great coach. Because like anyone can go get certified with our RCA VDOT. Anyone can get a degree in kinesiology, right? But what really makes someone um, stand out and make an impact, at least in my experience um, with all the coaches I've worked with, is someone who can really get almost inside of your mind and to be able to relate to you and make it personable so that you make lifetime changes where it's not just, okay, in four weeks, I'm, I'm just out, like I'm done. Um, it takes a lot of work to be able to relate to each athlete and be able to kind of change their perspective on things in a way for the better and for a more permanent, um, permanent lifetime. And I think we do work a lot independently when, when it comes to the nitty gritty of creating the training plans, right? I think we all kind of have a similar approach to how we would do that. But sometimes there's just these situational things that that come up and it's, it's, it's something that we need to come together about or we ask, like, what would you do in this situation, right? You know, someone's struggling with motivation or this or that. Um, and that's really where I think it can be super useful to have a team of coaches because there's always... Um, there's always tough situations that you come across and, and you lean on other coaches for support and advice. And that's why I love having a team of um, coaches. And it's it's really been beneficial, not only for myself as a coach, but also just to see the other coaches grow and learn from each other is really cool. So Jason, do you have anything to add to that? Wow, very well said. And you know, I think that we've all, yeah, we've all learned from each other. Um, the unique thing about our team is I feel like everyone brings their own set of strengths. Um, for example, like someone might be very kind of more skilled in the technical system side of things and may help people in that way. Others might um, have more um, knowledge on the physiology and the training plan. And uh, someone else might be more creative and have more ideas. And then another coach may be more skilled in communication or like empowering and motivating athletes like you mentioned. And so that's where I think we all um, are const- constantly bouncing ideas off off of one another, you know, we have um, like our, our Slack team page and, and other methods for communicating and we're constantly just um, touching base because it can be a bit isolating at times working, you know, remotely and on, on the virtual uh, being on the computer. So, um, you know, like any organization, I think it's important to continue to focus on, on personal growth and, um, and that's one way that we strive to do so is by um, challenging each other. Right. And one thing that's just really coming out to me is that there's pretty much like two polarizations to every um, strength and weakness, right? For every strength, there is like a counteracting weakness. And one of them might be, wow, like this coach is super motivational. They're always my biggest cheerleader. They're super supportive. And then like on the other side of that might be, you know, not as supportive, maybe always calling people out and always saying like what they're doing wrong. But a good coach has to kind of like meet in the middle there. So you can't like not 
be completely honest, right? If you're always being the rah-rah cheerleader constantly and you're never like pointing out anything that like they could improve on or saying like, hey, like you're going a little bit too fast on your easy days or, you know, bringing up those uncomfortable conversations, then that can start to be a problem over time, right? So you have to find that balance of, you know, not delivering the message too harshly, but also, you know, still having that personalization and being friendly rah-rah cheerleader. And there's definitely an art there. And I have had coaches that I've worked with before where it's too much in one direction or the other. And I think we're always just trying to figure out like what is the best balance and being able to learn from people who are on both sides of the spectrum, right? When they come to us with coaching and experience, we can kind of see, oh, this person's a little bit more on that that side of things and this person's more on this side. But it allows us to see the benefit of, okay, I'm going to strive to meet more in the middle. And that's why it's really cool. Um, so yeah, if anyone's interested in working with us or kind of seeing what our training is all about, we'd love to get to know a little bit more about you and pair you up with a coach. You can fill out the form on our website, www.runforprs.com. And you can always get a free seven day trial with that. Cause I know we just talked about our coaches and so maybe that got people excited, but we still do have two more questions to share with you guys. So the next one came from someone who had a sprained ankle a week ago. Um, They want to know how much longer until they can run and if there's anything that they can do in the meantime to not lose fitness as they're on this recovery, taking time off from running. So Jason, I'll let you kind of take this one first. Yeah, um, I would say obviously if you had a sprained ankle, you're hopefully... um, you know, getting stronger each day. And so if, if you can start to walk without any pain and spend a couple of days where you're walking pain-free, um, the next thing would be just to start adding in some light like form drills and seeing if that aggravates it or even just jogging for like 10 seconds, 20 seconds because um, we want to build back progressively. And so um, don't focus so much on kind of what you're going to lose. Obviously, it takes a couple of weeks to start to lose fitness um, and it won't take as long to gain the fitness back as you think. Um, if it's a sprained ankle, I would say you're probably okay to do some biking or some other form of cross training that's not putting a lot of, you know, added impact on that joint. And so that could be a way as well to, um, you know, stay active, but also to kind of keep the blood flow circulating. And um, obviously, we always want to recommend following up with a, a doctor or another PT or medical professional to get their advice as to when uh, you should start um, to resume your running regimen. Right, definitely. And so as coaches, we're not medical professionals. So I think the biggest thing anytime you're injured is to go check it out, make sure it's what you think it is, like this rolled ankle or whatever, sprained ankle. Um, Just make sure that you're following the correct procedures with an ankle sprain, right? Or if someone thinks they have shin splints, and it's chronic, I think it's really important to, to go in and get it checked out, make sure it's not, you know, a stress fracture or something, right? So it's really easy to kind of see these things or hear like, oh, just, you know, take a couple of weeks off, but really get it diagnosed first, I think is number one. Then you always want to follow the doctor's protocol for coming back after an injury. So let's say you get a diagnosis, you want to ask them, hey, like, when can I start training again? And that's when you should really ramp things back up and obviously coming back for from an injury, it's going to vary. So if you took like two days off, like you can probably just kind of come back with an easy run, right? But if you took like six weeks off, you're probably going to want to start back with like a run walk protocol, running every other day protocol. Um, we have a comeback from injury 
um, post that we did back in February, probably. So I would kind of scroll back on our Instagram, check that out. Um, and it kind of goes in phases, right? So it's really important to not rush back into things because if you were just sidelined, the last thing you want to do is get sidelined again. Um, I would see if you're allowed to cross train, ask your doctor, um, Hey, you know, based on my injury, can I cross train that sort of thing? And then also understanding that nothing can really replace running. So even if you stay super active and you do all this cross training, sometimes people go back to running after six weeks off with the mindset of, well, I stayed in really good shape with the elliptical or I stayed in really good shape with swimming. So I'm just going to like ramp back into things. But it's really important to understand that biking or swimming or elliptical or walking does not translate back into running fitness. So you still are going to lose that fitness and you are still going to have to build back slowly. So it can help with the cardiovascular system. It can help with um, not being as stressed out during those times because I know that's a big stress reliever for people is exercise. But that uh, that pounding on the body with running is unique to running. And so the muscular system really needs time to adapt to get back to where it was before. Um, and then again, you don't actually lose fitness for, for two weeks. Um, so then the next questions that we got were related to strength training. Um, so during a cutback week, can you still strength train? And then the other question was, what are the top three strength training exercises that every runner should do? So Jason, I'll let you kind of talk to that first one about during a cutback week, can you still strength train? Yeah, I would definitely say yes. Um, we want to probably maintain what we are doing during this week. We're not going to add any, you know, increase any loads or anything. Um, this is also a unique time to add in some more mobility work if you've been neglecting it. Um, so nothing that's going to be too strenuous. It's just going to help with um, kind of working on a lot of those uh, like smaller tendons, ligaments, joints that maybe we neglect. And so a lot of like single leg balancing exercises, for example, or, um, you know, if you have a resistance band, that could be a good a good tool to um, add in some more hip and glute work and that sort of thing. Yeah, definitely. And so even during cutback weeks, I mean, depending on your coach, you probably are still going to do maybe a little fart leg here or there, or maybe like a short workout. Um, usually even during like the taper weeks, you still have some sort of workout. Um, I know some coaches, they don't do any workouts on cutback weeks. So it just really depends on the philosophy there. But I do think regardless, you should keep in the strength training unless you're in like the final weeks of a taper. Um, keep in your strength training. Don't go after any crazy gains. Like don't go extra hard that week. Just kind of maintain what you had been doing. Um, and then you can maybe focus a little bit more on mobility, maybe do like a little bit extra yoga session in there and kind of focus that whole week on like rejuvenation. So if there is a certain lift, like I know for me, it's like squatting any, any more than X weight, I'm going to get really sore after. So I will say to myself, okay, I'm going to like lower the weight a little bit on the squat so that I'm not, I'm not feeling super sore. I'm going to give my body a little bit of a break, but that doesn't mean I'm going to completely ax out the strength training. Cause you're probably going to get even more sore if you go, you know, seven, 10 days of not lifting. And then you go back to it after a cutback week, you'd probably be more sore. So I think it's really important to keep your strength training in there unless it's like the final week of your taper. So then the next question was, what are the top three strength training exercises that every runner should do? So runners traditionally have really weak hips and glutes, and sometimes that will reflect on runners in different ways. So you might, when you're running, feel like 
you're, you're really tight in certain areas, right? Sometimes it'll be like knee pain or hip pain. Um, it, it's almost like when you've ran a lot, where are the areas that you tend to get the most sore? Those are maybe the, the weakest links for you, right? Or if you've ever had reoccurring injuries in a certain place. So everyone's a little bit susceptible to things in a different way. For me, it's my hips um, that are a huge, you know, prone to injury. So when I am doing strength training, I really focus on making sure that my glutes are going to be strong and be engaged because that will take less pressure off the hips. And then also doing some PT exercises that really focus in on the hips. So everyone's going to be different. And I think that's why it's really important to kind of reflect on what are my personal weaknesses instead of going for like, you know, what are the best ones for runners? Uh, that being said, there are the top three strength training exercises that give you the most bang for your buck, regardless of if you're a runner or not, right? So these are traditionally just like the squat, deadlift, and then do, doing like a plank or push up, those sort of movements. They recruit so many muscles. And so it's going to be the most bang for your buck exercise when it comes to seeing um, strength training gains and those sort of things. So those are three exercises that I recommend to everyone, regardless of if you're a runner or not. Those are like the best places to start. And then when you are a runner, you can kind of move more into those movements that are more effective for runners, like some of the mobility work that we talked about earlier, doing some of those band exercises for the, the hips, and then making sure we're doing some of that glute engagement stuff. And I know Jason has more experience on like the lower ligaments. Um, I know he has had some calf flare-ups over the years. And so sometimes for some runners, it's the calf and the feet that really need more um, more attention than the hips and glutes. So Jason, tell me a little bit about the lower ligament stuff that you do. Yeah, you know, um, I kind of had recurring calf injuries over the years and um, it'll flare up every now and then. I'll have calf strains and then I have to take time off and sort of rehab back from square one. And I always thought it was just because I had sort of a weak uh, left gastroc. And so I would spend a lot of time doing eccentric um, calf loading exercises and, um, you know, um, heel drops off a step and stuff like that. And then I recently found out a lot of that was contributing because of obviously a slightly misaligned hip. And then also my glute and hamstring not firing and not working um, like it should. And so that was placing extra load on the calf and the Achilles. And so um, through some structured strength training um, um, practices, I've been successfully, you know, back to running now and consistent again. And feeling, feeling stronger than I felt in a long time. And I think that, you know, those three exercises that you mentioned are, are very important. The squat, you can vary in so many different ways that you don't just have to be doing squats with a barbell. Um, you could be starting with bodyweight squats. You could do one-legged squats, um, off a side of a step, for example. Um, you could be doing single leg squats off a BOSU ball or on a BOSU ball. Um, there's so many variations, right? Kettlebell squats, dumbbell, that sort of thing. Same with deadlift. Um, if you start with just single leg dead or, um, you know, regular traditional, like, uh, remaining deadlift where you're just lifting up the bar, or you can, um, do single leg, leg deadlifts, um, you know, unweighted and then slowly start adding, increasing weights, that sort of thing. Um, then there's obviously like the full clean and that sort of thing. So there's ways to progress in these lifts. And then obviously the core is huge. So any sort of plank push-up position, that's going to be one of the best things you can do. Um, I've seen two different PTs. They both agree on, on these exercises. 
Right, definitely. And I think that's really important to note. So you were having, you know, some calf issues or whatever it may be. Um, but then after, you know, a long time of thinking, oh, I just need to strengthen my calves. I need to work on this. You actually found out that it was related more to a larger muscle like the glutes, right? So I think sometimes that is the case with a lot of people. Um, and when you neglect doing strength training as a part of your regular routine, um, then I think that just breeds room for these injuries to kind of flare up, right? And so the more you can just be consistent with, okay, I'm going to squat, you know, twice a week forever, right? I think the best strength training that you can do is something that you can do consistently for the rest of your life, right? So it's not about like any sort of quick fix or is there anything specific? I think it's just the consistency over time and doing, you know, even just those three lifts that I talked about, deadlift, squat, and then doing some push-ups. And, and working your core with the push-up, right? There's so many movements within that that build a stronger person and you have to fire like everything together and have good form. Um, those three moves alone can do so much, right? And so then building on top of that, if if you do have some weaknesses or you do have time to do a little bit longer of a lifting stint than you know just those three lifts, that's when you can start adding in some of those other things because runners do, you know, they work... Uh, the the back they don't work the lateral plane that much and so doing things where you're working side to side working on mobility is super important too because I think runners it's just really a monotonous sport where we're doing the same thing over and over again um, that you need to really work on the mobility aspect of things I know whenever I'm letting mobility and yoga fall to the wayside I will start to have injuries flare up just because my body isn't used to um, moving, opening up, those sort of things. You you have to have a body that's functioning and being able to do complete movements very well um, in order to really push it to the limit. So if you're someone who really wants to reach your potential in the sport of running, you really have to make sure that you're taking care of your body in those other ways, working on mobility, working on strength training, because the whole body is all combined, right? And so the stronger you can be, the more flexible that you can be, the better your body is going to be suited for doing pretty much any task in life, aging well, just feeling good and having all around physical health. Because sometimes I think runners get so caught up in, okay, I'm going to have the best cardiovascular system. I'm going to be the best runner I can be that they start to neglect other areas of their health, maybe like their nutrition, their strength and, and all of those other things. And so it's really important to look at the big picture, the whole picture of health and not just hyper-focusing on the strength training aspect. But if you are interested in strength training, we do have a strength training app and we offer a free seven day trial to anyone who is interested. So if you're just looking for some new ideas to incorporate, we'd love to let you guys have a free seven day trial of that. So if you visit our website, www.runforprs.com, and then you go to the drop down strength training, or you just check the box strength training, we can get you set up with that free seven-day trial. And if you're even interested in run coaching or just chatting with a coach, we'd love to hear more from you. So just go to our website, www.runforprs.com and fill out the form there and we can get chatting and have all of your questions answered. Thanks for tuning in.